what I think is really kind of crazy now. You know, people are like, oh, that's vintage. And it's from the 90s. And it's like, oh my God, no! Welcome to Vintage Picking with Bad Madge. I'm your host, Tanya McInear. Thanks for joining us on our first episode. A little bit about me and what this podcast is. I am a longtime fashionista and have a background in fashion from teaching at a local fashion college here in San Diego, as well as a fashion show producer. I was a fashion show producer for more than 20 years and worked with big time companies like Nordstrom's and Macy's. I also did a lot of mall shows and charity shows and I just loved working in the fashion industry. And I also taught at Fashion Careers College, which was a small college in San Diego. It's now defunct, it's no longer around. However, I was very much entrenched in the culture of the college. I was the director of student activities and an instructor in their fashion merchandising program. I also have a fashion bachelor's in fashion merchandising from the Academy of Arts. So my background has always kind of been fashion, and um, the story goes when I was a little girl, and I was about six, seven years old, I played a fashion show, and I would have all my friends over, and we would play fashion show, and I was always in charge, I told everybody what to do, and even my cat was in the fashion show. So I always loved fashion, my mom had lots of costumes, and we played dress up, and then I also played store. So now I get to play store and get paid for it. So it's kind of fun. Even as a child, I did the thing that I loved. So I opened Bad Match and Company about 12 years ago. Actually, it's going to be 12 years this coming March. Uh, it was a whim. It was not planned. Uh, things were changing in the production world and social media was really changing how I could do my job as a fashion show producer. And I decided to open a brick and mortar in selling vintage. And that was sort of the entrance into the vintage world. I had always been a picker per se. My house was very eclectic, my decor. I loved finding things at thrift stores or swap meets even things on the side of the road. Um, you can give a life to something that was thrown away. You never know uh, how you can reuse something. So my own life was always you know, filled with vintage. I also did a lot of visual merchandising for uh, several local malls, which is a static form of fashion shows. So you're doing a visual, a window display, or you're resetting their, their floor. And I would use a lot of vintage props in the window displays. So vintage has kind of been in my blood from even as you know a child throughout my adulthood. And opening a store was kind of a natural evolution to my skill set from being a fashion show producer, being a visual merchandiser, teaching all the skills that you need to have a vintage store. So we are going to be inviting one of our team members on the, on the show. So let's talk a little bit about what vintage is and how to find it. We'll also talk about collecting mid-century and being a small business owner. On the, the podcast, we will talk about running a vintage boutique, the difference between a vintage boutique and thrift stores, and of course, a whole lot more. Um, this pod is for the community of vintage enthusiasts. Uh, small business owners, collectors, pickers, pack rats, you know, if you're a bad match enthusiast, or you just want to hear a fun podcast. 
So whether you're new to vintage shopping or a longtime collector, Vintage Picking with Bad Madge invites you to join every third Thursday on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And on our first podcast, as I mentioned, I'm bringing on David Sosa. He is a longtime friend and fellow picker who is part of Team Bad Madge. Before we bring David on, I want to tell you about what is happening in the world of Bad Madge. March is Bad Madge's anniversary month. The brick and mortar has been open for 12 years, and we are located in the heart of South Park, San Diego, a little gem of a neighborhood in San Diego. We're about 10 minutes east of downtown, and to celebrate, we're giving back to our community, and we are teaming up with Feeding San Diego to crowdfund for hunger relief. Feeding San Diego is the leading hunger relief and food rescue organization in, in San Diego County. Their mission is to connect every person facing hunger with nutritious meals by maximizing food rescue. Feeding San Diego provides more than 35 million meals every year to children, families, seniors, college students, military families, veterans, people facing homelessness, and other underserved populations. Every dollar provides two meals, and our funding goal is $800. So our fundraiser kicked off on the 1st of March, and however, it's going to be ending this coming Sunday, March 19th. Uh, there's only three days left, so we would hope that you will uh, donate to this fabulous fundraiser. And if you can, please support a wonderful uh, organization, Feeding San Diego. You can go on uh, the Feeding San Diego website or visit our website, badmadge.com for more information or how to donate. We'll also have information on our Instagram and we'll add a link uh, to the fundraiser so you can always just go on there and uh, please support this wonderful organization. We hope that you'll help us get to that goal. And uh, Bad Madge has had a great website for a long time. However, we've been kind of redoing it and revamping it and looking to expand our reach. Uh, what better way to do that uh, is to bring Bad Madge to you. Uh, so we are excited to announce our fresh new website. And visit badmadge.com to do that. And you can shop our new online store, read our blogs, and just see what Bad Madge is doing. When you visit, please subscribe to our email list to stay up to date on everything we're doing. So if you're in San Diego tomorrow, it is our 12-year anniversary. So don't miss it. Uh, join uh, me and the team of Bad Madge uh, this Friday um, from 5 to 7. We are located at 2205 Fern Street in San Diego. And uh, we'll have drinks and light bites. So we're going to have a lot of fun things happening that weekend. And then also that uh, this, this weekend, we will have on Saturday our huge um, neighborhood walkabout. And South Park Walkabout is a quarterly event typically. And during the pandemic, we weren't able to do it. But now it's back. We're very happy that it's back. So Saturday, March 18th from 6 to 10, you can walk about in South Park. You can check out all the restaurants. Uh, it's great people watching. You can bring your dog, your kids, do some shopping, get some nibbles, uh, a little drink. There's so many wonderful shops, uh, small businesses in South Park, independent businesses that you can support. It's a really wonderful, warm, um, fabulous neighborhood. 
So we hope that you'll stop in either for our anniversary party on Friday or on Saturday for the spring walkabout. So let's, uh, before I introduce our guests, let's play a game. We're calling this segment Fun Facts for Vintage Fanatics. Just a few facts to help you start a new conversation, give you inspiration, or we'll all learn something new. Today we're playing the classic trivia game, Two Truths and a Lie, but with vintage facts. We have three segments, two are true and one is a lie. Can you detect the lie? Okay, our first one is Kodak sold over 8 million disc cameras in the year of its release, which was 1982, but the cameras were discontinued by early 1988 due to low sales and poor camera quality compared to the 35 millimeter cameras. Our second story. The general population did not use chairs commonly till the 16th century. Before that, people sat on rocks, stools, or wooden benches. Basically anything, really. When in the presence of their superior, they just stood. Only people from royalty or nobility sat on chairs in this period. The oldest known chairs are Egyptian in origin. They are ceremonial chairs dating back to 5,000 years ago. Our third story. The first product to get scanned with the barcode at a checkout counter was a 10-pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum in June 1970 at a Marsh supermarket in Dayton, Ohio. Well, detect the lie after our guest. And now let me introduce you to David Sosa, my longtime friend and team member at Bad Match. Hi, Tanya. I am so excited about the Bad Match podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been obsessed with vintage basically my whole life ever since I can remember. I started going to thrift stores in middle school. Um, I've always loved everything old. I wanted to keep everything that was my grandfather's or my grandmother's. Um, I love collecting, you know, random trinkets, uh, magazines, records, clothing, decoration, anything vintage. And, you know, through the years, I've become more and more knowledgeable about this. And I studied fashion design, which is how you and I met. Um, Tanya was my teacher for fashion design school. She taught me many classes and we've just been friends forever. I was um, Tanya's assistant for about two years when you were producing fashion shows. Um, And I moved to New York after that and I became an agent for models. And then I moved down to Mexico City and opened my own agency. And so I've basically been working in the fashion industry my whole adult life. Um, But I've always been obsessed with vintage. And recently, I have been collaborating with Tanya more and more. And my love for vintage just keeps growing and growing. And I remember when Tanya told me, like, I'm going to open a vintage store. And (laughs) it was really cool how she, I admire how quickly she was able to pivot her life and just to adapt. And she always is ready to just adapt and change and evolve, which is really cool. And so I want you guys to hear all about how she opened (laughs) Bad Match. Well, thank you. So when did you go to FCC? You were... I started 2004. 2004. So as we know, social media has really changed the landscape of marketing. And in 20, let's see, it would have been 2010, 
the college where I was teaching, Fashion Careers College, it had, it was a small college. We had anywhere from about 100 to 150 students. They were not doing well. I think the economy was really hurting them. A lot of different regs in um, financial aid. There was just big changes afoot, as you could say. And I think the owners were ready to retire in, in a lot of ways. They were... Um, you know, kind of burnout. I can understand that. It was a small family run business and I was director of student activities and I was also an instructor. I taught, taught primarily fashion merchandising classes like buying and sales. Store planning, store fashion planning. show production. Yeah, fashion show production was like my one of my main mm -hmm. classes. Textiles. Uh, once in a while I would sub for textiles. Um, anything that had to do with kind of the merchandising side of fashion. And, and you took us to trade shows yeah, in I Vegas. Was, she took us to trips in Europe. So mm -hmm. she was like the Mickey Mouse of the, you know, like you were like the mascot <laughs> was, of I the was. college. You were, at yeah. least when I was there. I, yeah, I was for many years. You I had did your all hands the in everything. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So. And, and I think because the college was small, we all, we all took, you know, part in things that we were really our strengths. And I was very comfortable being on cameras. So I was always the person that they would interview, like a, a news uh, story or whatever, I would be the person that would talk about the college. So the the school wasn't doing too well. They were having to downsize. And I was laid off in my job as director of student activities. And that was in the December of 2010. And by February of 2011, I was, I guess, really trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I had a class, I was teaching sales, and I took my students up to South Park. And one of my really good friends, Jeffrey Parrish, he had a shop in South Park. And he gave a little presentation to the class. And he had been a student at Fashion Careers College. Um, he was a fashion design student and very, very talented. Jeffrey is incredibly talented. And his little boutique uh, was curated with clothing and gifts and things like that. And he gave a presentation and kind of at the end, he's like, oh, well, I'm going to be moving two doors down. And something just peaked, you know, got my attention. And I thought, wow, okay. And after the presentation, because he said, oh, do you guys want to see the new space? And we were all curious and said, yeah, let's go look. So he showed us the new space. And I had lived in South Park for 18 years prior to this. And I had bought uh, my family home in 2010, so I had moved out of South Park, and I really missed the neighborhood. It's a great neighborhood. It's uh, primarily homes from like the 1920s to the 1940s, so it has a real um, kind of old school vibe to it. A lot of craftsman homes. The, the community is really strong. I knew a lot of people that lived there because I had lived there for 18 years. So he um, showed us the new space, and then after you know the presentation was over and the kids were kind of dispersing and doing a little bit of you know on their own, I mentioned to Jeffrey. I said, "Hey, you know who's going to be moving into your space?" And he said, "Why don't you?" And I said, "I think I might." And the next thing <laughs> I knew, I was calling the landlord, and two days later, I signed a lease. And three weeks later, I was open. So I would never, ever, ever tell anybody to do what I did. Um, I think because I had the skill set of all the things I had been teaching, 
and had been consulting with so many small businesses and doing fashion shows and working in malls and all these things. I knew how to do a store. I just had never had one. And it was crazy. I, I mean, I, where did you get all the product? So, I mean, I had a lot of stuff in my garage because I was slightly a hoarder <laughs> and I took things that I had collected over the years for, you know, maybe for uh, props in visual merchandising or props for fashion shows. I, you know, kind of called some of my friends, Terrence, who's still with us now, um, Terrence Burns, he's our visual merchandiser. He had a bunch of stuff. So friends brought in things on consignment. And I mean, it was minimal in the product selection because I had to just kind of like pull it together. Um, my dad, I, I cashed out my 401k that I had um, from the college and it was about 10 grand, I think. And then my dad gave me another five grand uh, to help me get the business going. And because we use so much of our product as display, I didn't have to buy a bunch of fixtures. I didn't have to, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I really knew what I was doing. I, I guess that, does that make sense? Yeah, in your gut you knew what, yeah. what you were doing. You were so familiar with that kind of stuff. And I think because of the training that I had at the college, one of my mentors, Andrew Bisaha, had always taught me that, you know, mistakes are vital to learning and really, you know, don't be afraid of mistakes because they'll help you grow. And that really helped me just not be afraid, you know, because fear, most fear is just imaginary. And so I had to just like jump in and do it. I had a lot of help. I mean, it really was, you know, a labor of love with friends and people that helped me from day one. Uh, Jennifer Grace, who is one of our uh, designers that we carry, uh, one of our indie designers, she came on and helped us with merchandising. And I had interns. And I would either be teaching at the college or spending my time at the at the, the store. And so at that time, it was kind of a transition Um I was, you know, basically selling and doing everything you needed to do to get the store up and running. The, I would say the first five years were incredibly hard because, you know, the South Park wasn't what it is today. It's really a blossoming, beautiful little community. Not that it wasn't beautiful at the time, but it was definitely more sleepy. Mm -hmm. And there would be days where I'd literally make nothing, zero. We'd have a zero day. Those are days you went home and you wanted to cry. Um... Now, I don't know when the last time we've had a zero day, which is, I'm so thankful. So that's kind of how the store sort of evolved. Um, the college closed in 2013. So for the first like two years of the store, I was teaching and also running the store. I did end up getting another teaching job at FIDM. And I do miss teaching, but I feel like part of what I do at the, at the store with my team, I'm always sort of mentoring and teaching. That's, that's a big part of who I am. So the store really was a, a, a whim in a sense, but it also was something that I had such the skill set that I could make it happen. And then you and can, now you can get your teaching bug out with this podcast. Yes, exactly. You can teach exactly. everybody a bunch of new and tricks. And then you came in. Uh, so I, kind of I, I want me. you to tell them though why. So when I was working for Tanya producing fashion shows, the her company was called Bad Match Productions. Yes. And then the, you named the store Bad Match and Company. Yes. What is Bad Match? So um, some of our listeners may know Madge, the palm olive lady. Um, <laughs> she was a mascot for palm olive uh, dish soap. What year? Oh, I don't know. I want to say... 60s? No, later. I want to say maybe 80s, something okay. like that. 
Uh, don't quote me. Please, Palmolive. <laughs> um, I want to say 90s, too, because when I uh, graduated from college, uh, for my associates from Fashion Careers College, because I did actually attend the college before I went and worked there, um, I was a agent for Nina Blanchard Modeling Agency. And one of my models, Jessica, she and I became good friends, and she was my roommate for a short time. And she did a lot of really dumb stuff. And we were constantly admonishing <laughs> her and saying, Bad Madge, because we had nicknamed her Madge. One day she was washing dishes and my friend Dennis Notrift was there and we were all hanging out. And he's like, look, it's Madge the palm olive lady because she was washing dishes with palm olive dish soap. So we had nicknamed her Madge. Well, we were always saying to her, Bad Madge, and waggling our finger at her. And it was literally... All we ever said was bad match, bad match. So when I started my production company in the 90s and started doing fashion shows, I named it named my production company Bad Match Productions. Not knowing that it was going to be, you know, over 20 years of producing shows and, you know, sort of when you name something sometimes you don't even really think about it. And then when I went to open the store, once again, Jeffrey Parrish, um, he and I were sitting there brainstorming, and I said, what should I call the store? And he just was like, yeah, just call it Bad Magic Co. And I was like, uh, that's perfect, because a lot of people knew it. And still, even today, if you drive by and you were maybe, you know, back in the day knew my production company, you might see Bad Madge. Um, recently, I think uh, one of my old um, students, Deej, stopped by, and I think he saw the sign and, and recognized Bad Match. I mean, it's mm -hmm. you know, it's not something you're going to see somewhere else, yeah. and it was a very recognizable name, and it just made sense. And Match is sort of this old tiny name, so it makes sense. Um, Everybody always thinks that she is Madge, and they walk <laughs> they into the do. store and they're like, "Where's Madge?" <laughs> and that's okay. Which I love. Yeah. I know I love. Everybody thinks that Madge is like a real person. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which maybe she is. So I think that the store has really evolved. Um, now we are primary. I would say a huge chunk, obviously, is vintage. We do have contributors. Um, I moved away from the general consignment. Uh, format with the general public because it just didn't work for me. It's so time consuming and I just really didn't feel like I wanted to have just anything in the store. So it's highly curated and uh, a lot of uh, the team, uh, our team members bring in items and I have a couple other friends that will bring things in, but primarily it's our team that is finding the items. I do most of the picking. David and I do a lot of it together. Uh, primarily now we are getting our items from uh, personal estates. People contact me directly and maybe they had a grandparent pass away or a parent or they're downsizing or they've been a collector for a long time and they're just ready to let go of some things. So for instance, I met with a lady, her name's Dee, and she's been a longtime collector and her husband <laughs> told her that she needs to be able to get a second car in the garage. And she <laughs> literally had half the garage filled with Pyrex. And um, my mouth's watering just thinking about it. <laughs> um, I love that kind of pick where I go and the garage is just filled with so many eye candy pieces. I mean, the amount of Pyrex this woman had was just mind-blowing and awesome. The next phase, I've been there twice now, and she just is a she has a really great eye, and you know she is ready to let go of some things, 
and she's been picking uh, for a long time. And we, we call picking meaning you're finding, you're curating items, you're find, you're like basically a buyer. It's another word for buying. And so we get, a, I get a lot of things from people like her that are just maybe letting, letting go, or we have an appointment coming up uh, next week with a guy in San Marcos, his grandmother passed away. And another friend of mine that has been a longtime picker referred us and he, we're going to drive up to the house. His grandmother passed. He sent me some pictures and I was super excited and said, yeah, we'd love to come up. So we buy it directly from them. Um, we do also like to go to like Kobe swap meet. Uh, I'm not a big thrifter personally. I just, I don't have, I guess, the patience to be picking in a thrift store anymore. I prefer to go to a private estate. I used to do a lot of estate sales when I first opened and estate sales have changed dramatically. Um, things have really, you know, sort of morphed. So, um, and then David came on during the pandemic, you know, just kind of helping. I think you just were kind of trying to find something to do because your agency was kind of... I was just working, you know, remotely and uh, came to San Diego. I, I wasn't even living in San Diego when I came here. And, and, and you actually asked me to accompany you to an estate sale. Mm-hmm. And I went, and, yeah, and I was like, "Oh Lord, I love this!" And then, <laughs> um, and even though it was weird, it was like you know we had to social distance, and we were you know it was yeah. it was a little tricky, but it was really fun. And then you needed help for a month, and I helped you for a month, and then I left, and then you know I just kept dreaming of <laughs> vintage and the store and everything. And to me, what's fascinating about like again, I've always been into vintage as a you know, client, sh- shopper, consumer, but I never once thought of ever, you know, selling vintage. Um, and what I love is that we are buying stuff from people that has, you know, taken care of it, used it, loved it, and they're ready to let go of it. And they make some money and they're happy. And then we are super happy and we buy it and we, you know, sometimes we, we clean it, we give it love, whatever, and then we sell it and we're happy and we make money. And then the person that buys it from us is super happy and they have a new treasure. And so it's kind of like this circle of giving second life to all these different things. I personally hate um, most of the new, you know, products being created um, and the lack of quality and the lack of story. I like old things. I like that they've, you know, lived for a long time. I like the quality. I like the uniqueness. And I would say that the world of vintage is full of so many quirky cool random crazy people like me that's really fun as well um and we all like different things and there's a lot of things that maybe it's not something that i would want to put in my house yet i appreciate the beauty of it and i like selling it and i like knowing that whoever's gonna buy it is in love with it Mm -hmm. and it's not you know so it's very our the store is very much a little museum of you know memorabilia of it's like it's really nice to hear people walk in and always mention, oh, this, you know, this reminds me of my grandmother. This reminds me of my, you know, Great. English teacher, my neighbor. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a very emotional for me personally. It's a very emotional experience because it makes me feel all kinds of things, and I love knowing that we as a team are creating an experience that all the customers and consumers are loving it. And I think I, I always say we're like a gateway drug into the vintage world because a lot of people <laughs> yeah. walk into the store not even really knowing because we do have some quirky fun 
um, either local designers or stuff like that that's new. Retro and sometimes people items, would yeah. never want to go to a vintage store, people that have never, you know, been and are not interested. Um, and they think of it as a, oh, it's just used in a negative, you know, way. And it's stuff that, yeah, it's been used, but it's it's so well made that it's lasted all this time. And it's so amazing and it's so, you know, hard to find. So it's very, for me, it's very engaging. To, uh, I just keep getting more and more addicted mm -hmm. to the vintage mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. um, t tell, I mean, I think about my own personal style or like decor style. For me, I like mid-century. It's what I've always been attracted to. Mid-century tends to be 50s, 60s, uh, 1950s, 1960s. And um, what I think is really kind of crazy now, you know, people are like, oh, that's vintage. And it's from the 90s. And it's like, oh, my God, no. But it is, you know. So vintage technically is 20, 20 years, years or older. Yeah. And antique is 100 years? 80 or? to 100, somewhere okay. in there. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a loose term. And retro, for those of you who don't know, means that it's something that's new, but it's made to look from the 50s, 60s, you know. Yeah, made, made, to, made to look vintage. To look it's vintage. using a vintage aesthetic, but it's newly made. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we tend to focus on vintage mid-century. However, lately we've been kind of incorporating some some uh, 80s, 90s, and I can't even believe I'm about to say this, but Y2K. <laughs> and I love all those things. Yes. So my personal aesthetic tends to be uh, more towards the mid-century. It's eclectic. Um, my I love color. Uh, I I'm, I would consider myself more of a maximalist. Because I like a lot of color. I'm not into the minimal like beige and white and cream. I find that extremely boring. It's just my own personal taste. Um, you're, I kind of call yours a little bit more grandma chic maybe. Um, I like to call my decor grandma's attic kind okay. of thing. Like, no? It's yeah. just full of the randomest things everywhere. But it definitely Definitely has... maximalist. Yes. I love, it. it's always full of plants also, but I just love. There's something on every surface of the yeah. wall. I hate looking at a wall. You want to see I art. I hate anything minimalistic. Yeah. And I just like seeing, but I like seeing, again, things that have been around for a long time. And obviously I have basically tried to like steal from every family member, anything that belonged <laughs> to my grandmother or grandfather or great grandmother. <laughs> so slowly but surely I've, you know, kind of collected everything that was spread out when my grandma died. And it's slowly coming back together in my house. Um, but I, I like the history of it. And I don't, and the more into it I am, the more I dislike new products, yeah. basically. And, and I, I like, I dislike anything that looks generic. And I just, the quality nowadays is not what it used to be oh. at all. And I just hate that we keep creating more and more and more that ends up, it's crap, so it breaks and it ends up in the landfill or whatever. And these pieces that we, you know, are talking about in general in the stores, things that are so well made that they're going to last. Like, they have lasted and they're going to keep lasting. Yeah. So. And I, I find that customers that come in that are buying, let's say they're buying a, a dresser from us, and maybe the dresser's from the 60s or 50s, the actual material and the workmanship is so much higher quality even from something from the 50s. So, you know, maybe, and I hear this a lot of times, okay, maybe a couple just moved in together and they had originally maybe some pieces from college that were from uh, Ikea and they're trying to maybe bring in their two, you know, their own aesthetic together as a couple and they're maybe looking at, okay, this piece is $800 for a dresser. Let's just use that as an example. You know, that is a, a bigger purchase 
and they're realizing that this is something that's going to last them a long time. It's beautifully made. It's beautifully, the aesthetic is beautiful. So those, that intrinsic joy that they're going to get from this item that was, you know, from the 50s or 60s really adds to the way that they design their own decor. And I find that really, you know, fun. You know, when I see somebody that's going to take something into their, their maybe their new relationship and they're designing together to design their own, you know, home decor, that piece is going to bring those two people in a way together because they're going to enjoy it together. And furniture you know, was made so much better. So that's, um, it holds value. You know, that, that um, piece holds value because it is made so much better. To me, it's almost like buying art in a way because if you buy a dresser right now from a new, mm -hmm. and I don't want to name com companies, I don't want to trash anyone, but like yeah. from a cheap furniture store. Um, that piece will, and even if it's kind of expensive, like the, the way they're made nowadays, it's not going to, the value is going to go down in two seconds. And if you try to resell it in three years, you can sell it for crap. If you buy a dresser from the 60s, 70s, 50s, whatever, that's well taken care of and you take care of it, it, you'll probably end up selling it for more than you bought it in 10, <laughs> in 10 years, honestly, because yeah. it's, it is a piece that was made in the 50s. They're, they're, they become more and more rare. So if you take care of your furniture, which I take very good care of my furniture, mm -hmm. um, it's only going to be worth more, honestly. Yeah. And it's not, I'm not saying you're going to be a millionaire by selling your dresser in 20 years, but it is, you're investing in pieces that are not only unique and beautiful, but are worth something. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's part of our history at the end of the day. It's mm -hmm. really part of, you know, human history. These, these pieces that were made so well with so much love and nowadays everything's made if you buy a dresser new they made a million of them yeah. a million yeah. and the wood is crap and the, the, yeah. the, it, so it's just not the same and i feel like you know as americans we if we can move back to things being made here and providing economic engine vintage is an economic engine and um you know when we think about you know something being made in the u.s it provides income for the people that are making it and then the people that are selling it so it's you know and when something changes hands multiple times that money train that went mm -hmm. with that item is really amazing i didn't mention but when i was uh i think when i was nine years old for like three years i was the president of the ecology club in my school i didn't know that yeah and I've been obsessed with recycling for as long as I can remember. Yeah. I'm one of those people that has like compost in my house. I yeah. like I'm, and you can't get more, you know, into recycling. Like vintage is the most like friendly in this that sense. It was already made. It's been you know we're not making it again. We're not spending money on factories and whatever. Like mm -hmm. the the piece was made before and it's lasted for this long. And again. It's a, like you said, the money trade. It's the, the the old person that sold it to us. We sell it to someone else, and the piece is so well made that it keeps changing from hand to hand and making so many people happy and making money. Mm -hmm. And again, not ending up in the it's landfill. It's being recycled. And then we also have a little bit of upcycling. Uh, we have a, a furniture guy, Oscar. He finds pieces. Maybe he'll go to an, uh, an estate sale or he'll go to an auction and he'll buy a piece that is maybe a little bit battered up. You know, it's like beat up maybe. He will paint it, refinish it. That's that, like, not just recycling, but like 
upcycling. Mm-hmm. You know, you're re- you're really able to like re-love something even if it just takes a little bit. And you see a lot of this on like TikTok uh-huh. and on Instagram. People are showing how you can save a piece. You know, maybe you go to a thrift store and you buy, you know, a, a pair of nightstands for $20. And maybe, you know, you have the skill set. You can upcycle it. And you can watch YouTube videos. TikTok. Oh, it's so easy There's nowadays. so many things out so there to show you how to, like, re-love something and make it yours with just maybe a little bit of paint or sanding it and staining it. Whatever you feel like you want to do with your aesthetic. That, to me, is so much better. We I took a... A load of uh, green waste, you know, we were trimming my trees in my backyard and the gardener uh, went with us to the dump and I had to get rid of all this green waste. And we pulled in and David was with me and it was just like heartbreaking to see all this stuff at the dump. Traumatizing. Traumatizing. And you see things that you're like, why did they throw that away? My first instinct is to jump out of the car and go grab stuff. But you can't do that, unfortunately. So I feel like, you know, every time someone calls me and says, hey, I have this stuff, even when I don't want it, I want them to find somebody that might. Whether it's putting it on, you know, uh, for free on Facebook or posting it on Craigslist or putting it on offer up, get it to. I mean, if I just put something the other day, I put a, a painting that I didn't want, wasn't going to go in the store, it wasn't our aesthetic. It's something I don't remember even where I got it, and I put it out on the curb in front of my house. And literally, it wasn't even ten minutes. No, it was, it was like, like two minutes. And two minutes. Pulled over and, and this like, woman, my neighbor, saw it, put, picked it up. Rolled down her window and said, thank you so much. I'm going to put this in my house in Mexico. So, like, don't throw things away. If they still have value, if there's still some kind of intrinsic aesthetic to it, please find a home for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, we kind of got off topic, but that's okay. No, I like it. Yeah, so, um, okay, we did a little bit of a, a, a quiz a, a little bit earlier. So, we want to see if you guys uh, came up with your guess. So... Uh, you know, first we talked about Kodak, uh, who sold 8 million disc cameras uh, in the year of its release in 1982, but the cameras were discontinued by early 1988 due to low sales and poor camera quality compared to 35 millimeter cameras. Or B, the general population did not use chairs commonly till the 16th century. Okay. Or C, the first product to get scanned with a barcode at a checkout counter was a 10-pack of Wrigley's Juice Juicy Fruit Gum in June of 1970 at a Marsh supermarket in Dayton, Ohio. So what's your guess, David? Which one is the lie? Which one is the lie? Yeah, there's two truths and one is a lie. What's your guess? I think the Kodak is the lie. You think the Kodak is the lie? Okay, my... Or the chair. Definitely, I do think that the fruity gum is, like, true, because it's... Okay, I mean, I think that, like, when when I was reading them, I was thinking, okay, the Kodak thing, because I know a little bit about Kodak, but I'm not sure about that date. So I'm thinking, is it 1982? Like, is that the right date? Because I know, you know, Kodak... They were so innovative with their instant cameras, so I don't know. Like, this is more about their 35 millimeter cameras they were competing. So I kind of feel like maybe it's Kodak 2. I don't know. No lie. 
Yeah, maybe. Okay. Maybe. Because we got the, these <laughs> questions weren't provided by me. These, I mean, these answers weren't provided by me. Our project coordinator, Caitlin, provided them. So they're trying to trick us, I think. Hmm. So let's see. Which is it? Hmm. Do I do a drum roll? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so false. Uh, the first product to get scanned with a barcode at a checkout counter with a 10-pack of Wrigley's Juice, Juicy Fruit Gum in June of 1970. So actually, that was false. Oh, no. So I think it was the date that threw me off. So the fact is the first product to get scanned with a barcode at a checkout counter was a 10-pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum, but it was in 74. And oh. it was in a, a Mars supermarket in Troy, Idaho, not no, in Troy, Dayton. Ohio. Troy, Troy, Ohio. So not Dayton, Ohio. So they tricked uh, us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's really a kind of a fun little game there that we played. So, you know, I feel like as you find out more things about things, I don't know everything. There's no way. Like, I have kind of jumped into this business, and I'm always learning things from other people. You know, our team members bring on things. You know, they tell me something. I learn a thing, something from Matt, one of our team members. He's always teaching me things. Michelle, one of our other team members. I'm constantly learning things from them. Because my background was always fashion and, and fashion show production. I mean, it was a very niche thing. Like, I could produce a fashion show in my sleep, which basically I kind of did because you're dreaming about it. But now it's like, here I'm in this world and I'm learning constantly. And, you know, like American Pickers, they were really inspirational for me. I loved the show. Uh, Mike and Frank were huge, uh, sort of in a, in a weird way, mentors because I learned about picking and how to price things from them. I was going to ask you, how do you price? I mean, I know the answer, but tell people. So we call it the three to five to stay alive rule. So if I buy something, I have to mark it up at least a minimum of three times. A minimum of three times. And because of our overhead, you know, we have a lot of overhead from payroll to, uh, you know, the rent of the store and things like insurance and, you know, our SDG&E bill and those things. Obviously, our budget, I have to do a minimum of three. And um, how do you know how much it's going to sell for? Well, I mean, I've kind of learned over the 12 years things that I haven't sort of a knowledge now. To, but I'm still always being you know, blown away. Like I'm constantly looking on eBay or Etsy to research things. The eBay and Etsy world is now retail. Like that is retail. Um, the online market has changed the retail landscape so dramatically that you have to look at, you know, and, there, and there's so many people that are making a great living selling things through Etsy and eBay. And other, you know, vintage platforms. But I, but I feel like those are way, you know, where I can look and get an idea of what other people are paying for something. And know, okay, my customer will pay this. You know, when you walk into a brick and mortar, you have it in your hand. You're not paying shipping. It is yours to take home. Also, you're paying for an experience in the store. You're paying for this um, five, you know, the five senses, like really being able to mm -hmm. be, you know, and our team is amazing. You know, they really are about customer service. So that is part of the price in a way, I think I try to think about it, it that you're paying for this experience too. And, um, and there's just one, yeah. you know, like you just maybe like yesterday I was pricing, I found this, um, I guess it's taxidermy. It was a it was a, 
a, a butterfly in a glass it's globe. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. Did you see it? Yes, I want it. So, you know, so mean. I was shocked at what people were paying for it. I didn't know. Like, sometimes you buy something and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And it can go in several ways. You can buy something and you think it's really cool. And then you go and you look it up and you're like, oh, well, it really wasn't all that great. I liked it. Or you're like, wow, that's so awesome. I'm going to make X, Y, Z on it. You know, or you know, sometimes you'll find something and, you know, maybe the person doesn't know what they have. And it's not like you're necessarily trying to rip them off. Like I've bought stuff at the, the, the swap meet. I remember buying this lamp at the swap meet in Santee. And the woman was just trying to get rid of stuff. And I bought this lamp and I got home and I started researching it. And I think I paid like $5 for the lamp. And I ended up selling it for over $300. You just never know. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can find things at thrift stores or at, you know, um, a garage sale. You don't always know. And it's not like you're trying to necessarily rip people off because you're getting it for such a good deal. But then there's other sides of it where you buy something and... You break it on the way home and you're like, shit, I broke this. And I, it, so there's, you know, you're, it's a give and take. Of course. You know, sometimes you pay a little bit more for something because you know, it's going to look really sexy in the store and it's going to be this great like focal point. And yeah, maybe I paid a little bit more for it. Um, and you just, cause you got to have it. Mm-hmm. But then you have the other side of it where you like got something for really cheap and you get a great deal and you and you are able to make a huge profit. So it's kind of like a give and take, especially in our, in our And there's business. things that like you might have paid $5 for them and you're going to sell them for 15 It's not like the market was amazing or anything, but it's so beautiful to like we get so excited just to yes. be able to touch these things and to like play with them and. And merchandise them in the store. Like, it's so fun. Like, obviously, we need to make money and we need to pay rent. But, like, the whole experience is mm-hmm. so fun. One thing that, to me, is 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 funny is that a lot of these people sometimes will call us and say, Hey, you know, somebody in my family passed away. We want to sell all this stuff. And then you show up to their house and they're expecting to sell you these things for the amount that they Google. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize we can't buy it for that amount because we have to sell it yeah. three times higher at least yeah. so and a lot of these people don't realize if you say well i can get a hundred dollars for this online yeah but then you have to do it you have to do the work you have to post the photo answer a bunch of emails and messages coordinate either the shipping or with the person picking you up so we do all this for you but obviously we have to pay less yeah so sometimes that's what people don't understand is if you're going to sell to a reseller your price is lower but you have no work you don't even have to clean it you don't have to do anything other than give it to this person and collect your money yeah no it's it's a big difference And and we'll talk a lot more about that in upcoming episodes about how to price things you know all the steps that it takes for an item to get into the store because I think people really don't have a, a any kind of clue unless they're in this business how things end up in the store. I mean, there is so many steps, and we'll talk a lot about that in upcoming episodes. So we're going to kind of wrap it up now uh, with our final sort of goodbye. So to to keep up with Bad Madge, you can follow our Instagram at Bad Madge B A D M A D G E, and we also have our websites is uh, badmadge.com. 
and you can find us on Facebook and join our VIP group. We're creating a VIP group, which everyone needs to be a part of. And, you know, obviously you can come into our store. We would love to see you. We have a lot of people, obviously our regulars, but we have people that live all over the country and maybe they come to San Diego once a year. I have a lot of um, customers that will do that. They're like, anytime I come to San Diego, I come to your store because they've heard about us or they know about us or they've been in before. So you can come into our brick and mortar. We're open seven days a week. You can check our website uh, for our hours. You mentioned that you're the number one vintage store, but you didn't say why. Well, we got voted number one through Yelp. And um, big deal. It was a big deal. It was based on our reviews, so we really appreciate. <coughs> excuse me. Appreciate our customers doing that. And we we appreciate like when we see the people message us or people tell us in person how much they love yeah. our store and our Instagram and the and it's a lot. It's a whole team of us. It's not one person. And no. There's a lot of hands involved, and it's really nice. So every every time you guys share the love with us, we really really appreciate it. I had a um, dad and daughter come in last week, and I was chatting them up. And the daughter, I'm gonna guess she was probably sixteen ish. And she sheepishly, he said to me, he said, oh, this is my daughter's favorite store. And she was real sheepish about it. And it was really cute. And I was like, oh, my God, that makes my heart, you know, swell. And she's like, I just love everything you do. And I love the store. And I come in here and I dream about it. And so, you know, it's all ages. We try to have something for all ages. And I think that's what makes us kind of a fun place to explore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a fashion side and a furniture and home side. So there's like two spaces that you can explore from, you know, vintage fashion, accessories. And then we have home goods, furniture, art. I mean, we have all kinds of things. I tell people we are a vintage lifestyle store and it's highly curated. Um, We'll talk more about like the difference between, you know, what... uh, a curated vintage store is versus like thrifting. There's a big difference. Huge. And we'll be talking more about that in other episodes. So please stay tuned and join us for our next episode. So thanks everybody for joining us for our first episode of Vintage Picking with Bad Match. Uh, join us next month, Thursday, April 20th, for the next episode uh, about what vintage is and mid century and why we love them and here at Vintage Picking with Bad Match. Uh, feel free to send us an email if you have any questions or comments. You can send it to badmadgepodcast at gmail.com. That's B-A-D-M-A-D-G-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Badmadgepodcast at gmail.com. And if you love this new podcast, don't forget to hit us up with a, a like and a comment. Uh, those likes really help the show grow and be discovered. So thank you. I'm Tanya McInear, owner of Bad Match and Company with David Sosa, one of our team members. Of that.